taking responsibility isn't a burden. It's not a heavy weight to carry. It's a great liberation. It's a great, exciting thing to actually be involved in the remaking of these systems to work for all of us. Hi, Vicki Robin here, a host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute, where we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, uh, so that they can help us all see more clearly and act more courageously in service to the crazy times we're living through. Today's guest is Eric Liu. He's the co-founder and CEO of Citizen University, and he also directs the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. He's the author of several books, including The Accidental Asian, Notes of a Native Speaker, The Gardens of Democracy, co-authored with Nick Hanauer, You Are More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen, and his most recent, Becoming America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. Eric served as a White House speechwriter for Presidents Bill Clinton and later Deputy Domestic Policy Advisor. And he has served as a board member of the Corporation for National and Community Service, the Washington State Board of Education, and the Seattle Public Library, and is co-founder of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. It's a great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. Hello, Eric, and welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute, in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good asking each one in the midst of all that is going wrong, what could possibly go right? So your beat has been democracy and citizenship. You've been writing and teaching and convening conversations, running programs, all aimed at people owning their power as citizens to shape the future. About your flagship Citizen University, you say, Citizen University is building a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship across the country. But as you and I know, all is not well for citizenship in the United States of America at this moment. While Trump is no longer president, Trumpism is not going away. Battles are brewing. We are polarized left to right and also ordinary people in the elite. So thousands of pundits and reporters and podcasters and professors and movement leaders have filled the public square with anguished and often conflicting stories. Are we as polarized as it appears in the mirror of the mainstream media? Is the tide of democracy going out or is it coming in, whether in pockets or in states or in the nation in general? So I'm asking you to squint for us into this cacophony and tell us what you see, what green shoots of citizenship do you see sprouting now as we emerge slowly from isolation and return to the public square. So Eric, as I say to all my guests, what could possibly go right? Uh, Vicki, it's so great to be with you. I love, I love the question. Um, I love that you've built a podcast around the question. And I love the way that you're awakening people's uh, sense of imagination. I mean, the question is fundamentally about civic imagination and it's not just an attitude shift, right? I mean, it is better to think about, well, it is positive to think about what could go right um, rather than face all that is going wrong. Um, but I think it's that's not just a matter of mindset of are you optimistic or pessimistic? It's really something deeper. And it goes to the word that you, I think, lingered on a second when you described when you read that mission statement for Citizen University, my organization, 
um, and the word was culture. Our work is about fostering a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship here in the US. And um, what is culture? Culture is um, our norms, our stories, our habits, our mindsets, our heart sets. Um, and so when you ask a question like what could possibly go right, um, you are doing something that is right now rather countercultural. Um, and uh, uh, in an age of doom and doomsaying and uh, we're the evidence uh, all around us, but also the ways that media is incented to tell stories um, is all about catastrophe, um, uh, real and imagined. And so the countercultural act of asking what could go right is very much bound up with the spirit of counterculture that we have at Citizen University. Um, we feel like we're operating against a dominant culture of hyper-individualistic, short-term thinking, um, selfish, atomistic uh, approaches to everything, uh, to economic life, to community life, to civic life, to democracy itself. Um, and what we're trying to do in our work, um, it, it, by building this culture of powerful citizenship, we are inviting people out of that um, market imperialistic isolation. Um, and into a web of relationship, a web of trust, a web of obligation. Um, and that may sound like, oh, well, you know, uh, isn't the whole American dream to be free of obligation, to be let alone, to be able to do whatever the heck you want? And, um, and to a certain extent, yes. And that is, I suppose, the way in which we are countercultural. But when you look more deeply at what's made the United States function to the extent that it has and what's made it thrive to the extent that it has, it has not been only about rugged individualism, right? As, as I often like to say, rugged, rugged individualism never got a barn raised. Rugged individualism never got a vaccine made, for instance, right? Um, all great endeavors are collective endeavors. Uh, all things that are purposeful are purposeful because they are not done alone. Uh, and the promise of American life is a promise that I think is still worth believing in, even though we haven't achieved it. And that is the promise that this could actually turn out to be planet Earth's first mass, multiracial, multi-faith democratic republic. It hasn't happened yet. You know, people have tried. People have tried two or three or four of those adjectives, but not, uh, not all of them and not all of them at once and not all of them at once in a way that's inclusive of everyone, right? Uh, when the United States has succeeded at being a democracy, it did so by limiting the definition of who is us, by limiting what you called the public square um, to whites only, or men only, or people with uh, you know, literacy only, or people with an education only. Um, and so this question of, is it possible actually to do that is one that we are living through right now. Uh, and I am hopeful that it's possible, but I am not certain that it is. Um, and I think, I say hopeful rather than optimistic, because to me, optimism, pessimism is a, is a bit of a spectator's frame. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic that the Yankees might win the World Series this year, but I have pretty much nothing to do with it, right? I, uh, I'm a fan watching, hoping, wishing, praying for my team to do well. Uh, but hope implies agency, uh, and it, replies also, it implies also responsibility. Um, and that is where I think that, you know, your question, uh, this podcast and our work at Citizen University are countercultural in that they are about responsibility, not only rights. They're about duty and obligation, not only permission, liberty, and 
privilege, right? And I think one of the things that we've got to do here is to say that these things are not burdens. Taking responsibility for the planet um, uh, in a carbon neutral way, uh, taking responsibility for um, racial justice. Uh, we're speaking here right now the day after the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Um, taking responsibility uh, for um, the ways in which our systems of democracy are rigged uh, by the few, for the few, and of the few. Um, taking responsibility isn't a burden. It's not a heavy, heavy weight to carry. It's a great liberation. It's a great, exciting thing to actually be involved in the remaking of these systems to work for all of us. Uh, and so at Citizen University, we try to teach people literacy and power and a grounding in character. Uh, because we believe that it's power plus character that equals citizenship. You can't just have one half of that equation, right? So some of our programs are really about breaking down the elements of power and how power works in your community, in your country, uh, you know, whatever scale it might be. Um, but also to couple that literacy and power with, a, um, with an ethical moral framework that is not just about, again, uh, raw self-seeking. Uh, that is about obligation to others but also a sense that we are situated in a time horizon that is more than just the now, uh, that, that inherits the past and that is steward to the future. Um, and, uh, and these, again, these are all deeply countercultural things in the United States of America in 2021. Right. Um, and I think what gives me hope is that, you know, when you ask peer around the corner, scout for the culture of the future, um, I don't know what I see around the corner. I, I can imagine that this will be a passage during which we reckon, during which we, we take responsibility and we actually have a fourth founding of the United States and, um, and really deliver on the idea of liberty and justice for all. But whether or not that comes to pass is uh, completely up to us. Uh, and so that's why I'm impassioned about this. I'm trying to expand the number of people who see this as our responsibility, as our purpose, but also as our joy, um, so that we can actually turn the outcome toward that positive um, vision. Uh, but your question, you know, is the tide of democracy um, in ebb or in flow? Um, I don't know. I, I don't use the title metaphor. I use the garden metaphor. Um, democracy is not a machine. It is not a self-perpetuating, perpetual motion machine. Um, neither, by the way, is the market. And you've spoken a lot about that. Um, mm -hmm. Markets, democracies, communities, families um, are complex adaptive systems. They are ecosystems. They are gardens. And gardens require gardeners. Gardens require mm -hmm. tending. You can't be laissez-faire about a garden. I mean, initially you can, right? It'll grow like gangbusters and be awesome. But then pretty quickly, what happens? Noxious weeds will take root and take over. Um, and that's what's happened in casino capitalism and the financialization of our economy. And that's what's happened in the rigging of the game of democracy um, by both money power um, and uh, other concentrated hoarded power, right? Um, and so we're trying to make more gardeners in a hurry. And, um, and if we can get enough and mobilize enough and awaken enough, um, then that positive vision will come to pass. But if we can't and we won't, um, then actually what we will return to is what most of human history has been, which is a Hobbesian vision in which the idea of equal citizenship is just a, a myth, a dream, and a joke. Um, and in fact, what prevails is just raw domination. Um, and enough of us have had enough of a taste of that. 
um, in the United States over the last four or five decades um, that enough of us are seeking radical measures. And some of those radical measures take the form of people believing in QAnon and storming the Capitol and, um, and drinking deep from the well of Trumpism. Um, and others have gone hard to the left um, uh, in ways that are equally wanting to blow up the current systems. Um, but what we've got to do is to push for a radicalism that is inclusive uh, and for a radicalism um, that defines success, not by saying, um, I want to um, I want to hoard for myself, but I want to actually circulate for all uh, because it is possible um, to both believe and to effectuate the idea that we're all better off when we're all better off. Um, so that's our work at Citizen University. And that's, I know, the spirit of everything you've done in your, not just this podcast, Vicki, but your great, deep, rich career. Um, and, long uh, and hoary career. Anybody listening, yeah, yeah. So, suppose anybody listening to this knows you, but uh, I just want to say for those who might be first timers to you in this work, um, you, you are a model, a paragon of everything I'm preaching. And uh, so I just appreciate everything that you've done mm. in your work. Uh, it's sort of like I can't help it, you know, and I think that's true of you too. <laughs> yeah. It's just I wake up in the morning and that's who gets out of bed with me. Um, <laughs> You know, I want to press on this a little bit because, um, you know, what I hear you saying is that things are tipping in the balance. We really can't say which way it's tipping. Um, and we can be hopeful and we can be frightened and we can like, you know, sort of like sitting in a, uh, in a rowboat, you know, and like leaning to the left and leaning, to, you know, like trying to be in relationship with these sort of fairly high seas that we're in. And, you know, according to some people who've lived through, you know, a turn to dictatorship, these are the easy times and these are the calm waters. So, but so there's the idea here, though, is that there are things that are happening that people can cooperate with. It's not, um, it's, I would challenge you to, to, to like tell us, it's not all a mystery to you. You see places. And it may not be the typical things. It may not be the people in the streets. It may not be, you know, voting, you know, voting. It may, you know, like you are an expert in observing citizens stepping up. And, you know, where do you see people stepping up such that you think like, whoa, that, that's a strong oarsman over there. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I see it everywhere. Um, and that is why I am probably net hopeful. Um, I, I see it among young people we work with in some of our youth programs at Citizen University who um, are eager to gain that literacy and power so that they can start figuring out how to um, make um, programs in their schools more inclusive of LGBTQ um, youth um, so that they can start creating interfaith conversations in communities that are deeply divided or deeply dominated by a particular um, evangelical Christian idea of godliness. Um, I see it among young people um, who are really mobilizing and organizing other young people um, to start taking on um, the inclusion of unheard voices in things like the policing debates or the immigration debates. Um, but it's not just among young people. Um, one of the things that gives me the greatest amount of hope, and you're right, it isn't so much about elections, voting, or policymaking. Um, it's been at the citizen level, um, the incredible surge of mutual aid. Um, now that term 
has come into such widespread use during the pandemic. Uh, but if we're honest about it, most, frankly, most of what has been passing for mutual aid during the pandemic and during the reckoning that followed the murder of George Floyd um, has been essentially glorified bulletin boards. Like I'm gonna post what I need and other people will post what they might offer and maybe people will read and cross pollinate across those boards. Um, but what I'm seeing on the ground, and this is actually what we're trying to accelerate on the ground through one of our programs called the Civic Collaboratory um, is the practice of mutual aid. Um, is people actually coming together across different silos of sector, of region, of ideology, of generation and saying, look, um, I've got a project that I'm trying to do um, that does X in civic life, that tries to reform this particular part of our community, um, and I need help. And what we've created is a format called the Rotating Credit Club, where everyone else in the room doesn't offer critique or commentary or thrown pot shots or peanut gallery, you know, questions about the project. All that other people in the circle in the room do is make hard commitments of help, investments of capital of every kind. I know a person who can do this. My organization can do that. Um, I will help you with your communications. I will, uh, I'm a funder. I will invest some funds into this uh, endeavor, right? Whatever it might be, whatever the form of capital might be, um, you know, we're seeing these circles spread around the United States where people are making these kinds of mutual commitments of help uh, in a way that uh, says, look, nobody's coming to save us. Um, mm -hmm. It's better to have a you know, this, it's better to have a non-sociopathic president uh, than a sociopathic president, but the president of the United States will not save American uh, self-government. American self-government will be saved by Americans themselves taking responsibility for governing ourselves. And governing ourselves is not just about voting in elections. I, I'm absolutely hugely um, focused also on what we do to show up in voting and show up in uh, the push against voter suppression. Uh, but there's a layer that precedes that, uh, or that lays beneath that, and that is this layer of seeing ourselves as responsible for each other and seeing ourselves as empowered to support each other uh, in community and rebuilding that Tocquevillian muscle of association and mutuality. Um, and I see that everywhere in the United States, in small towns, in city blocks, um, and that gives me a fair amount of hope. And, um, you know, we've, we've partnered with... Um, um, Jim and Deb Fallows, uh, uh, authors uh, of the book, Our Towns, um, right. which uh, you know, and, uh, and a documentary was recently made based on the book. And they went to medium-sized towns all across the United States, uh, uh, out of the power corridors of the West and East Coasts, um, and out of the media and political and financial capitals of the United States. And they went to places like San Bernardino or Scranton um, and uh, and what they found in these places were people just coming together mutualistically in a mutualistic spirit to fix stuff, to solve stuff, uh, to create new spaces where people could come to rehumanize each other, even if they might have voted for different people or worship at different places. Um, and they're telling these stories of people at Citizen University. We're working with these people. Um, and I believe there are enough of us uh, to to turn that tide or to sustain the health of the garden uh, of democracy. Uh, but I also think it's important for things like this podcast to amplify that story and to amplify, uh, to give people greater reason for hope uh, and for faith uh, that it's, you're not alone if you think you wanna do this. Um, and that there are many networks for you to join um, and many ways for you to start uh, clubs and capacities uh, where you live um, so that we can uh, spread this, this spirit of awakening. 
Yeah, we'll put, uh, we'll just get as much as we can from you and put it in the show notes. I have a, I have a couple of uh, questions here. I have lots of them actually. Um, number one, the places you, you mentioned in the Fallows um, project would indicate that there's a scale of democracy beyond which democracy becomes there's not enough glue. There's, it's more sort of ciphers, you know, it could be done by AI, you know, like reading your Facebook feed and voting Mm. for you because they know you better than you do. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, is there, is there a village scale? I'll do three questions. Okay. Number one, is there a, a scale of democracy beyond which it breaks down in some way or transforms into something else? Um, the second thing is, um, and I think this is what you're doing at the university, is um, do all projects, you know, solutionary projects, do they always all have a, like a spark plug? I mean, is there a type of person, whether they're trained by you or not, who just shows up and starts to like move things around? And then yeah. the third thing is, and I think this is the toughest one, um, is I live in Whidbey Island. We have um, we have a strong three percenter group here. We have a history of white nationalist groups here. We have a very strong, you know, like um, the Navy's up north, but that's not the only thing. You know, we have a strong red culture up in the north end of the island. So we are all is not well in our little kingdom here. Um, and I know that the liberals want to be inclusive, and everybody has these inclusive ideas, but but there's you know, there's, there's a sort of like being repelled by the cultures, the red cultures, you know, it's like, I want to be inclusive, but you have to come over to my house and you have to drink with my tea set, you know? And uh, I, I puzzle about this. I puzzle and puzzle and puzzle, you know, how does this, you know, where, how, how do we become sufficiently civil we don't really like each other, but sufficiently interested in one another's well-being that we don't sort of blow up our end of the boat to spite your end of the boat. Mm. So those mm. are those are the the scale, mm. the spark plugs, yep. and the the you know polarization. Love that. Love all three questions. So very briefly, on scale, I think you're right. I think you actually put it very well. There is a scale of democracy that is um, that is probably optimal, um, and uh, and social media and technology today makes us forget that. Uh, but you know, the anthropologist Robin Dunbar, um, you know, is the originator of what now is called Dunbar, the Dunbar number. Um, and, and you know, he noticed that uh, across civilizations, across different sectors, or whatever it might be, whether it was a Roman legion um, or a company in the army or a uh, corporate organization or a religious uh, congregation, um, that humans, most of the time throughout human history. Um, they have a maximum number of meaningful relationships um, that they can hold at once, a uh, maximum size of community to be embedded in for highest fidelity and quality of relationship. Uh, and it's like 100, 150 such relationships, right? That, that may not mean 150 individuals, that might mean 150 families or 150 you know, things, but uh, beyond that, things start to degrade. And, um, and it is worth thinking about what would it take to Dunbarize our democracy? Um, and to rescale back to, you know, that's why the precinct is the precinct. But, um, but people think of precincts today just as a administrative uh, artifact uh, and where I have to show up to register to vote or to cast my ballot or something like that, or 
uh, or it's a relic of a past in which precinct wards were the bosses and so forth. But the scale of 150 relationships um, is a pretty good place to start thinking about what change you can make because, the, the, because frankly, the scale of the problems that we are facing in our democracy is so vast that it can be very disempowering. It can make people just give up preemptively um, to try to fix democracy. You don't have to fix democracy. Fix the group of 150 that you are part of uh, or join a group of 150 that you could make into an agent of the fixing. Um, that brings me to the second question you ask about the spark. And, um, you know, is there a certain, um, you know, X factor in people who can make this kind of change? I think there is, but I hasten to say in all of our work at Citizen University, we try to avoid the word leader. We don't talk about leadership. We speak of civic catalysts, not leaders, um, because there are many people who are catalysts of change and action and reimagination that may not have the title or the mantle or the authority or the formal office of leader, but they're the ones who make it happen. They're the ones who, who, who go ahead and, okay, I'll be the one, I'll organize the potluck. Okay, I'll be the one who makes the spreadsheet. Okay, I'll be the one who says, come on, a few of us have to go over to those folks over there we don't like and strike up a conversation. Um, whether or not they have, sometimes they do have the formal mantle and authority of leader, but not always, right? And I think, um, you know, the person like you who just gets out of bed and can't not do this, um, that's part of it. Um, but it doesn't even have to be that. It doesn't have to be the person who has the zeal of the Vicky Robin or the kind of evangelistic uh, uh, <laughs> spirit that I have in civic life. I mean, it can just be someone who looks around and realizes no one else is going to do this. Guess I will. Guess I'll be the one, right? And um, American life is filled with people like that. That is what, that not rugged individualism is what has distinguished American life and American culture from say the culture of my parents, uh, uh, native country, China, right? Um, which has a, you know, not individualistic, but also because of the collectivism is so vast and so oppressive in a way, no one wants to be the one to kind of catalyze change or ask the impolite question uh, or force the, uh, the, the awkward moment, right? Um, and that is a benefit of being in American life. Your final question about depolarization and so forth. I mean, you actually partially answered the question in the way that you posed it when you said it can't just be, I'm willing to do inclusion if you come over to my house on my terms, drinking from my tea set uh, and so forth, right? Uh, um, that's not, that's, that's fake inclusion. That, that, that is um, um, forced inclusion, right? That's, that, is that is demanding um, uh, face-saving surrender, right? Uh, uh, and I think what we've got to be able to do um, is, number one, um, we have to each reflect on what are the contents and what are the boundaries of our commitment to pluralism, right? Inclusive, inclusivity doesn't mean you have to prioritize including the people who are the most noxious. I don't, you know, there's no obligation on you, Vicky, to put all your energy in getting the most extreme of the three percenters, the most virulent of the white nationalists um, into a conversation with you. Um, but there are definitely people who tag along as part of the three percenters, who hang out with the militia groups, who, who, who might march in a tiki torch march in Charlottesville, who are, who are not so far gone that they can have that an appeal to their humanity might bring them into a third space that is not that space and it is not your space. 
but it is a space of rehumanization, right? And that third space of rehumanization has to be about at least two things. Number one, it has to be about shared experience or action, right? Let's do something together. Uh, and in a place like an island, like Whidbey, like there's plenty of stuff to do together, to, to, avert, to, to repair after a disaster, to fix something, to bail someone out when they're, um, you know, their well or the irrigation system is busted and, you know, to come together after a fire, whatever it might be, right? Um, that's why I'm a huge believer, believer in national service, uh, you know, a thing yes. that brings us together across our backgrounds, not to talk about ourselves and each other, but to do a third thing in a third place, right? Um, shared experience is one, but the second is when you do finally get to facing and dealing with the ways in which you have differences, deep differences, um, is to recognize, number one, uh, that just being in the presence of this person doesn't diminish you, right? I hear a lot from younger people on the left of, why should I even engage with somebody whose very philosophy or ideology dehumanizes me? And I say, literally, what do you have to lose? By entering into engagement with this person, you're not diminishing yourself. If you're diminishing anybody, you might be diminishing that person just by being the quote unquote bigger person, but, uh, but it's not about diminishment. Um, it is about asking whether there's some germ of curiosity in your heart to want to know, how was this person formed? How was this person, in your view, deformed? What might you have in common in the traumas, in the trials, in the life experiences that led this person to their view of the world and led you to yours? Um, and might there be from that even tiny little sliver of a Venn diagram of overlap, some basis for rehumanizing each other? And rehumanizing does not mean agreeing, right? One of our big projects that we run with uh, Facing History in Ourselves um, uh, is, is called the Better Arguments Project. Uh, mm. And it's the premise of it is that as toxic and polarized as our politics may be, we don't need fewer arguments in civic life. We just need less stupid ones. Uh, we, we need arguments that recognize our full humanity, that recognize the inequality of power that may we may be bringing into an argument, but that see each other as emotional creatures who have pain and trauma and fear and hope and bring that to the table every time we engage in a, in a political argument, not as rational calculating machines who would be persuaded by facts and by information, uh, but by people whose emotional needs have led us to one point or another, right? Um, that's a better argument. And you may not change that person's mind, but you can't possibly change another person's mind if you yourself aren't willing to have your own mind change or your own heart open. Uh, and so I think part of, you know, if I think about what that looks like in a place like Whidbey, um, it, it looks like getting people together to work on some common things um, uh, and then build some trust and build some relationship. And from there, be able to have a basis to say, okay, I know you and you know me enough that we can stop demonizing each other um, we can joke about how we have stereotypes of each other, but now let's get real and let's talk about the ways in which we came to these worldviews. And let's talk about how each of the worldviews that we ascribe to the other harm us, make us feel less than, make us feel hurt. Um, and if you enter into an argument not to win, but to understand, all kinds of things become possible. Uh, and taking winning off the table is also a very un-American thing to do, uh, mm -hmm. but it is part of what we've got to do right now. And again, that's just to go back to where we started here. That's best done at a human scale where you can see that person or engage with a real person um, and not be anonymized on social media or 
um, just on a uh, on a, uh, a, a thread of torching and flaming each other, um, you know, in a comments thread on a on a piece on um, online. So anyway, I think all of these things are part of what it means to return to a human scale in democracy and in self-government. And um, and I'm not naive. Um, I don't think these things alone can fix things. And I think when I said earlier, being honest about differentials in power, it also means being honest about there is a difference in the kind of injustice that the United States has perpetrated from the beginning um, toward the first peoples uh, of this land. Uh, there's a difference between that um, and uh, the, the injustices uh, that a big government might do by overregulating your small business, right? Th these are not the same thing. Um, right. And they, they carry different moral historical weight. Uh, but I think understanding each other and understanding the instincts that one might have um, to have a political view, um, again, it's, all, it's about understanding. And it's about recreating a culture of understanding. Um, and it's only by doing that that we are going to be able to try to have a shot at making a mass multiracial, multi-faith democratic republic for all of us. Well, that seems to be a wrap, Eric. <laughs> That's a perfect windup. It's so it's it's so rich in possibility, you know, and I think it's just up to all of us to take what you said and fill it out with life experience, you know, with the real people who live next door to us or in our town or, or you know, this is just. I will quickly add that there's yeah. a whole ecosystem. I mean, please join, you know, for, for anybody watching and listening, Citizen University, we would love to have you join our work and you can just find us at citizenuniversity.us, the Better Arguments Project, just betterarguments.org. But we are part of an ecosystem of many, many projects and organizations, just like you said at the beginning, Vicki, who are doing this kind of work to rehumanize, to depolarize, to create a culture of responsibility taking rather than responsibility shirking um, in American life. Um, and um, if you come to us, you may not want to do our programs, but if you come to us, you will then find a gateway to a whole range of hundreds of other organizations around the United States doing similar work, just as this podcast does the same thing. So there's a way if there's a will. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's sort of exciting, isn't it? And, and in a way, you know, in a way, I'll, just, I'll do my little wind up is... Um, I know one of the pitfalls for me as a social entrepreneur, activist, whatever, is, is that I'm doing one thing in order to have something else happen. I'm doing this project in order to lower consumption in North America. I'm doing this project in order to. And so when I don't see my projects add up to the standard that I set for myself, that was like a beacon out there, like I'll work really hard because I see this thing out there. And so I've been learning as I age that um, you have to, you have to bring, you bring the passion that, that's, that arises in the presence of a noble goal. And then you bring the detachment that says, I may never see the results in my lifetime, or the results may be so diffuse that, you know, there's no way to put my name tag on it. So there's something about citizening that is not project or person-oriented either. It's a sort of, um, as you say, it's a culture. It's like- It is a faith. What? It is a faith. It is an act Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a lived um, sort of, uh, what do you call it? Social kindness and, and goodwill, you know, really. And 
without an attachment to being able to see that you, to have your little pin on some picture somewhere that says you did that. And it's actually pretty exciting. And I think the times demand that. I just don't think there's any linear way to interact with this complex reality that we're inside of now. It's not in the future. It's not over there. It's, it's, we're in, we're all inside it. And so this sort of participation as a, citizen is way one way to talk about being with the forces at play such that through you something might go right absolutely <laughs> and you know the, the the title of one of my books uh, is you're more powerful than you think um a citizen's guide to making change happen and, and and that is the message that any one of us i mean look it's the positive side of the lessons we've learned during the pandemic we have learned during the, during the pandemic that we that no one is an island that no one can wall themselves off from other people's suffering um, and that we are deeply interconnected whether or not we want to be um, and that horrible things are contagious no matter how secure we might think we might be. The flip side of that is that we are all also nodes of a constructive contagion. We are nodes of a spreading of a way of seeing, of a way of believing and a way of doing. Um, And yeah, you may not, I may not see um, the fruits of that um, in our time here, um, or we may even see those fruits come to say, and we, but we may not be able to claim, I did that, right? I didn't do that. I was only part of a great flotilla or a great, you know, web of people who did that. And, um, you know, and again, our society, that's a little countercultural too, right? Totally. Um, we've already made a narrative that Stacey Abrams saved the Georgia Senate elections. She was catalytic. She was a catalyst par, you know, par excellence. Uh, but that only happened because an incredible ecosystem of people showed up and arose um, to claim voice and power. Um, and so your de- your description of it is spot on. I've been taking notes here about that <laughs> way in which it, it does require a new way of thinking about what agency and power are. It's not, I did this, I see the result. It's, I pour my passion into this and that energy feeds the web and the ecosystem and that complex adaptive system over time will, if we, if enough of us do it, yield the result that we, um, that we hope for. And at very least, Eric, we'll have a good time. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? Well, Rome burns, you know? <laughs> You're an so, inspiration, Vicki. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Join us on Patreon and become a financial supporter of the show and for exclusive content and special online events. Thanks also to Cher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.